Welcome back, everyone, to Articast number 25. Uh, massive guest, we could say today. Uh, we've got Adam Henson uh, from the telly, is the easiest way to explain it. If you want to say hello there, Adam. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it muchly. Uh, I'm just going to quickly pass you on to Past Wallace uh, for a wee sort of festive thank you. Thank you very much, Future Wallace, for passing uh, me on and this opportunity to be on the R2 cast. Thank you kindly. I just wanted to throw this in quickly. Massive episode coming up in about 30 seconds. Um, this is going to be the Christmas special, as I'm sure it'll be titled and stuff like that. Thank you so much for the support over the last year. We had 25 awesome episodes been serious one i guess you could say should be 26 but we started about three weeks into the year and um, so yeah thank you very much um already got some excellent guests lined up for next year and as always hope you enjoy yep so thank you very much uh past wallace uh don't want to dress like that for a full podcast so um yeah back into normal clothes for now um yeah as i said earlier thank you very much for the support of the year it's been great and look on looking forward to next year uh as always Whatever you're looking for the podcast, it's on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and it's like 20 or 30 more now. I didn't even know half of them existed. But if you're somehow listening to one that it's not on, just get in touch with me and I will do my best to get it on there. So enough of me. Um, on to Adam. Adam, you were brought up, brought up on a farm when you were younger. Could you tell us a bit about that and, and when your sort of love for farming began? Yeah, so I was very fortunate to have been born and brought up on the family farm at home. So my father um, was from a, an acting background. So his dad, my grandfather, was a famous comedian, entertained the troops during the war, uh, worked uh, in theatre in London, hung around with people like John, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, if you're, if you're old enough to remember those names. And um, so was a celebrity of his time. But dad, so dad was a Londoner. But he um, fell in love with farming as a boy and worked on farms, milking cows by hand, working with shire horses, went to agricultural college in Sirencester and then took on an assistant farm manager's job and then a farm manager's job locally to here. And then the Bembra Farm tenancy, where I now live and work and where I grew up, came up on the market in 1962. So he applied for the tenancy, managed to get it and um, took on the tenancy in 1962. And I was born and brought up in the house that I now live in with my wife and, and two children. So um, I've lived and worked here virtually all my life, um, quite insular, but very lovely in another way. Very fortunate to be in the beautiful rolling Cotswold Hills. You know, the old adage is there's no place like home and that certainly rings true to me. And uh, so, and my dad, um, you know, encouraged me and my three older sisters to get out on the farm with him when we were little. And we all loved it and we all, you know, carried buckets of sheep nuts and water for the lambing ewes and those sorts of things from the moment we could. And uh, and I always wanted to be a farmer from the moment I can remember. It is, it's, was, how was getting tenancies back then? I mean, they're like gold dust. It, was, it, was it as difficult or was it a lot easier? Um, I don't really know because um, I've never actually asked him the question, which which is it's a very good question. I think it was a lot easier. I think there were a lot of county council um, tenancies available and a lot of larger estates. So on this estate, which was owned by Corpus Christi College, Oxford, there were uh, four tenants at one time across the whole farm. As the older tenants retired and gave up, uh, gave up their land, they tacked those tenancies on to the Bembra farm tenancy, the tenancy that I'm, I now have, and they sold off periphery land, um, sold off farm buildings and houses. And so farms became bigger and bigger with less and less tenants. 
And I think a lot of landlords, particularly nowadays, are, are taking land back in hand. Um, there's all sorts of tax release relief reasons for doing that. Um, but yes, tenancies are very difficult to come by now. I, I think they were a lot easier then. Yeah, and, and that, that had to be a good thing. Um, what, 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 was, what, what did you have on the farm then, mainly sheep or...? Yeah, so it, when Dad and he actually took it on with an old school friend of his, uh, you know, and they became business partners. Um, it was 450 acres, and it was a mixed arable beef and sheep farm. And um, the farm grew, as I mentioned, over the years when we took on surrounding land. Um, and my dad had a passion for keeping breeds of livestock, breeds that he'd read about as a boy in, in his books that he collected. And um, post-war, when we were a starving nation, we moved away from some of our old-fashioned farming systems and some of our old-fashioned breeds. So dad start, saw them falling by the wayside and some of them becoming extinct. So alongside their commercial livestock, the sheep and beef, he started collecting rare breeds and ended up with quite a large collection. And his business partner said, look, Joe, the reason these are rare is they're not commercially viable. They're not making any money. So what are we <laughs> going to do about it? And um, dad, as a boy, had always visited zoos and loved going to zoos. And so he said, well, why don't we open to the public? We'll have like a farm zoo. We'll call it a farm park. And then in 1971, um, they opened the first ever open farm in the country, if not in the world. It, it, so the Cotswold Farm Park was born in 1971, really to showcase and pay for his expensive hobby of keeping all these wonderful rare farm animals. It's it's quite interesting to think that, I mean, a farm park is just normality now. It's, it's a thing that's on a tourism board and every place you go to, if tourism boards are still a thing, you know, they're, they're everywhere. But the idea that only 50 years ago, it was a surreal thing and the first, as you're saying, in the country and potentially the world, must have been a massive jump. Uh, to go for that but what what sort of is there any rare breeds that jump out to you be the beef uh, beef for or sheep um as a favorite yeah so the the county breeds um those are the gloucestershire old spot pigs um the cotswold sheep and um, the gloucester cattle are our three main county breeds that my dad always had an affinity for and adored and had you know they were the first animals he had and I remember them very clearly as a child growing up with them and we still have them on the farm today and and you're right you know he was a trailblazer of his time and um his farming mates thought he was nuts opening his gates <laughs> you know why would you want to do that leave you know they leave all the gates open and put a litter around the place and in the first year um when they tried to open the locals uh, petitioned against the Cotswold Farm Park and um, all the villagers around us said, we don't want tourists blocking up the roads. And back then, the Cotswolds was a way through to the coast. It wasn't a tourist destination like it is now. You know, every other place has got a brown sign directing you to some shape or form yeah. of tourism. And so he was a trailblazer and he was very much about communicating to the public about food and farming. And again, back then, 50 years ago, farmers just put their grain or their animals on a lorry and it went down the road we were heavily subsidized and we just picked up the price for our animals at the time and communication about food and farming and where your food comes from was you know was hardly done you know people like you didn't exist <laughs> you know it was it was a rare thing which is why you know people have forgotten about the value of food but but yeah that going back to your original question those are my probably my three favorite breeds although we now still have 50 different breeds of seven different species on the farm. 
I wonder if you could name all 50. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, th- that disconnect between food and farming it was huge. I mean, it wasn't even a related industry. Uh, quite crazy. And you mentioned um, that some local farmers thought, thought your dad was mental for jumping into it. I think that's still the case when people jump into farm parks, to be honest. <laughs> but are you sure? Uh, but they always work out great. So those of you that watch, uh, those people that watch Adam uh, on the telly, and I am sure there is more of you that do that than watch me. I say sure, I know that's the case. Um, we'll know a lot about what he's doing, but could you tell us, uh, Adam, what you are sort of doing for, for trying to sustain rare breeds for promoting them uh, in the country? <clears throat> yeah, so I think, um, so certainly with the Cotswold Farm Park, our tourist enterprise, that sort of core message of rare breeds conservation, explaining where food and fo- your, your food comes from, explaining about conservation and land use, is really, really important to us, you know, to our 160,000 visitors we get during the year. And for me, when I got a job on television, um, perhaps because of my sort of thespian background, but also because my dad had worked in the media with um, Johnny Morris on Animal Magic and with Angela Rippon and Phil Drabble on a programme called In the Country, I'd seen dad sort of communicating, not only to our visitors, but also on screen. And that was a very kind of a natural thing for me to do as well. And um, although something I hadn't set out to do. And so my partner, um, she persuaded me to apply for a job on Country Farm. And um, you had to send in a video of yourself why you thought you'd be good at it. And and amazingly, well, she videoed me skillfully and edited it very well, which is why I got chosen for auditions. And then amazingly, I got the job. And that that opportunity to tell the story about farming has grown over the years. Initially on Country Farm, we were a Sunday lunchtime program getting 2 million viewers. In 2009, we moved to a primetime show in the evening and we now regularly get 6 million viewers and they feature much more of me on my farm rather than doing all sorts of other things around the country. It's mainly agricultural topics I focus on. And that is... um, an amazing opportunity to talk about some of the incredible things going on in farming. As a farmer, it gets me behind the scenes into businesses that I wouldn't normally get to see. And all all the farmers who might listen to this will know as you drive around the countryside, you're looking over hedges and walls, wondering what other farmers are getting up to. Well, I get to go and find out. And also I'm getting paid as a presenter at the same time. So it's a a (laughs) win-win. But that communication about food and farming, you know, through Country File, through Springtime on the Farm, on Channel Farm, on Channel 5, um, through Adam and Nigel, uh, Nigel and Adam's Farm Kitchen, that was a, a great programme. And more recently, I've, I've done a programme for Channel Farm called Our Family Farm Rescue, looking at struggling farms and how they, they can diversify. I, I feel is a great honour, but sometimes a weight on my shoulders to be able to communicate about, uh, you know, a, a, about the countryside. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, I think <clears throat> Country Fell has shown what's happening in the country and that it's great to see everything that's happening in the country. But I also like the, the connect that that offers viewers to almost connect with your farm and see this is real. This is what's happening. We're not just getting snippets with the camera for, for 20 minutes a, a, a week. Well, you are for that, but I mean, like on random places, I mean, you're constantly seeing what's happening on that farm. And, and that, that's good for the industry. It's good for for the consumer to see what's happening as well. <clears throat> um, that's that's big viewership. It's 10% of the country. That's I didn't think it would have been that high. I didn't think I didn't think anything saw that 
now on a weekly basis. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's um, it. It's the most watched factual program on television, which is a which is great for those of us who live and work in the countryside to know that the nation is engaged and watching it. And it does show a whole. It's a magazine show, so it shows a whole array of topics. Um, to the to the public but for me yeah talking about the food and farming but also talking about some of our very valuable gorgeous rare breeds that I feel very passionate about and lucky enough to carry on my dad's legacy that's a that's a great opportunity to follow the journey of some of those animals that the that the public the viewer get to know and get to know about them and, and write to me and want to know more and then come and visit them at the farm park you know that's that's really really um valuable yeah excellent excellent um you mentioned there, uh, actually one more thing I'll ask, but how did Country Fail start? You, you said how you got in, but when did it start and how did it come about originally? Yeah, so I think it was originally a, a farming, an out-and-out farming programme, talking about the price of lamb and wheat and you know, very much for the farmer about farming. And then it slowly developed um, into Country File, which was much more of a wide, far-reaching programme about countryside events places art poetry you know whatever you like it, it, anything going on in the countryside which made it reach out to a far greater audience and of course if you're selling a television program or a magazine or a newspaper or a radio show you want a wide audience you want lots of people you know reading or watching or listening to your show and it achieved that very well for the farming community they felt a little bit robbed because they had their farming program taken away um but um if all we did was talk about the price of lamb and you know technical stuff about farming it would be a very limited um viewers viewership watching it so it so it started as a farming show and then moved on to country farm which i think was probably i can't remember how many years ago 30 40 years ago yeah, right, okay. Um, you heard folk talk about the farming programme. Is that what it was? I think that would have been it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right, okay. Um, what what does your week, country file-wise, look like then? So there's obviously, there's half an hour on t- No, that's wrong. No, that's right. An hour, half an hour. An hour, hour long show. Yeah. An hour, yeah. Well, I don't know why a half an hour couldn't find there. Um, it's an hour long show. What, what's your week to create that hour long show involved? Yeah, so so back at the head office in Bristol, um, part of the Natural History Unit, there is the Country File office. There's a big team of researchers down there, the executive producer, series producer, that come up with the shape of each show. And then there's a whole series of topics within it. And my section is usually about eight minutes long. And I will film on a Monday or and Tuesday, usually. So two days of television filming um, to make eight minutes. And then every other Wednesday in the studio for a few hours doing the voiceover. And we're usually two or three weeks ahead of ourselves. So to keep it reasonably um, topical and seasonal, um, we start, we try and, you know, not get too far ahead of ourselves with the topics. I will sit down with the producer and discuss what's happening in agriculture. They'll have a bunch of researchers coming up with ideas. They'll look through farming magazines the press go on the internet um and i'll suggest lots of things to them as well and people write in suggesting ideas so actually if there's any of your listeners thinking wow i've got something i'd really like to talk about on country file then do write in because they you know they won't use everything but they but they're always looking for new ideas and then um so we film it it's edited and out it goes and the practicality of filming it um particularly now um during covid we carried on filming every week and um, we is one self-shooting director 
So it's a person who has the skill to be able to help write the scripts, set up the filming, use the camera, um, get all the focusing right, um, work with the editor to edit it, um, do the sound as well. So they're, they're running the microphone on me and if there's a contributor with me working, listening to the sound. So an incredibly demanding job for a very multi-talented, skilled person. Um, and for me, I've got the easy bit. I'm just the gob on the stick. Um, and, uh, and I just make animals the stars, put them in front of me and, and away we go. But, but that person who is generally a male, um, usually blokes are doing it. Um, uh, it's very, very skillful. Phenomenally skillful. What a diverse range of talents. And I assume if you're involved in writing the script, you're also going to have a, a, a knowledge of agriculture. Well, not necessarily agriculture, whatever's on country field. Um, yeah, so they, so absolutely. So they so what they do is when they arrive on the farm, or they'll I'll get sent it usually just the night before, not very far in advance. It's called a treatment, um, and I might be teaching my grandmother to suck eggs, but but basically it's the it's the introduction from the free previous presenter. So it might be Matt Baker or Anita Rani. Now we're going to go to Adam wherever he's in the country or on his farm, and they give me a little introduction, and then there's my opening piece to camera. There's some voiceover. There's an interview with it all sort of scripted out in a in a framework. So you've got an idea of the storyline that we're trying to stick to. And then I'm given the free reign to change that a little bit and put it into my own words. Unless there's facts and figures and people's names and places that I need to get right. Um, um, and But so that the person using the, ca the camera is very technologically minded, sort of, you know, good technical skills to do the sound of the camera work and all that, but also a good storyteller and good understanding of how to get the story across. They have to have a base knowledge of the, the subject, but most of the technical farming information they get from me. Um, and um, sometimes, well, often they want to make it much more accessible to the wider viewer. So I might talk to you about the technicalities or using farming speak. So I might say, I'm going to move this bunch of steers up the paddock we're going to run them down the race and into the handling system and put them in the crush um and he'll say i don't understand what you're talking about and so i then have to say i'm going to move these bunch of steers which are castrated male cattle animals we'll put them into a handling system we'll put them down a narrow corridor we call a race that they'll then go into a contraption we call a cattle crush where we can hold them still where we can work on them the farmer is then shouting at the screen why is he talk why is he talking to us like an idiot um but the person in the flat in Hackney, who's never been on a farm, is thinking, right, yeah, I get that. And, and that's what we have to do. We have to, to speak to a wider audience than just the farmers. And it's the skill of the director to make sure that that is, the story is told very clearly and understandably. You know, that's really interesting because when, when I was arranging some questions and stuff, I was quite interested if, if the script was you had to follow that verbatim or if you had sort of the, what's the creative license or whatever the word is. Um, but yeah, I think it makes more sense that there's, there's some change allowed. Yes, obviously statistics and stuff that's got to be followed, but that, that, that's quite interesting. Is there, is there any standout highlights in your time? Let's just say on TV, even in general. <clears throat> yeah, there, there are. Um, 
I've been very fortunate with the programme to have been travelled all over the British Isles. Um, uh, West coast of Scotland is gorgeous. Um, loved going up there. Um, <laughs> blood for Scotland. Um, and it's taken me abroad, you know, farming in Russia. I've um, been out to New Zealand where I travelled, um, you know, post-agricultural college and caught up with some people I met out there, sort of retracked my steps. But probably one of the highlights for me was when we followed the journey of Hereford cattle. So we looked back in history of Hereford cattle that when we found descendants of the original animals that were taken out on ships to Australia, and we found relatives of those animals in the UK, we then traced them all the way to Australia and found existing animals of, of those descendants as well. So related to the ones in the UK. And we, we rounded these cattle up in these massive fields, you know, a 20,000 acre paddock, you know, which is like 10 farms or 50, 20 farms <laughs> over here um, on horseback and, and then in helicopter and brought them into the pens to do various jobs on them. And I was, a, as a boy, I always wanted to be a cowboy. I always watched, loved watching the Westerns. And it was like my childhood dream come true, you know, rounding up Hereford cattle on horseback with, you know, in, in, in the outback was just extraordinary. That sounds like a proper dream come true type dream. Um, we're not dream thing happening. Um, how long was the process of, of chasing that sort of pathway in the Hereford then? How yeah, so through? it went on um, for a, about a month. So we did some filming within the UK and then um, and then we went um, flew out to Australia, which of course is a long flight. And it, we were out there for about nine days. Um, so it was a long way to go for just nine or 10 days being in Australia. And it, we traveled around a lot. Um, um, we, there was no line via pool or swimming in the sea. It was... It was full on filming. And, and if you talk to anybody in the media, you know, these foreign trips, although they may seem like they're very glamorous, um, they're usually really hard work, and um, but, a, but a great treat. Mm. Jet, jet lag for half of it, traveling for a quarter, filming for a quarter and 10 minutes to have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. I, I can quite imagine, I can quite imagine. Um, so you're, you're filming, um, they're sort of two days normally for country file. Uh, is that just country file? Um, and then you're also on the Wednesday sort of doing some voiceovers or is that some of your other commitments as well? Is it a five day week filming or are you on the farm most days or how does that sort of work? Yeah, so, so the rest of the week I'm, I'm usually on the farm, um, either working um, with the team at the farm park or on the commercial farm. But then because I, because um, I've been on television now for some time and worked on, on other programs as well occasionally. So when, when I'm working for Channel 5 and doing other programs, because I'm freelance, I can work forever I want. Um, that then does mean that quite a lot of my week is filming either for one program or another. But some of the other doors that have opened because I'm in the media is corporate work. Um, so I work with... Um, for companies so I'm you know when the Royal Free County show was on um, I work with them doing stuff for, for in agricultural debates for them going to the show I'm Lloyds Bank farming ambassador so I travel around the UK meeting farmers and talking about sustainability of British farming and talking to you know accountants and lawyers and land agents and so quite a lot of corporate work um, has has come my way so my hands are a bit soft and um, you know I'm not out practically driving tractors and shearing sheep like I used to um, but I still love all that um, but I just can't be included in the team all the time because I'm just not here enough um, but 
the media is a fickle old world and one day they'll drop me in the bin and, and when they do I'll, I'll just go back to being a proper farmer i'm sure they won't randomly just get sick of you after 20 years <laughs> i can't see that <laughs> happening um what you're mentioning there uh, that you're obviously not on the farm 24 7 how many people are you employing at the farm stroke farm park <clears throat> yeah so so i've got a fantastic business partner so we're joint directors of henson and andrews he's duncan andrews i'm a henson oh, so the farming um tenancy we're joint directors of that and then joint directors of the Cotswold Farm Park so we're 50-50 across the whole thing and he and I um, he joined me in 1987 and um, so he's been with me a long time he and I went to agricultural college together he's got really good understanding of accounts and business and spreadsheets a fantastic business person which I'm not um, so we complement each other's skills and then we've surrounded ourselves with really good people so we've got um, Six on the commercial farm, so an arable manager and a livestock manager, and they've got two assistants um, each. Um, we have someone in the office helping us um, with, as a sort of secretarial role. And then at the Cotswold Farm Park, we've got 90 staff, um, thir 13 full-time managers, and the rest are seasonal staff. So we're, we're a large employer with a lot of people, and that, that takes um, a huge amount of management, um, that we're, you know, we've learned as we've gone along and management, people management is a, is a great skill. So we use advisors and consultants to help us with that, um, to help sure we're, you know, running a, you know, a good team. Well, you're looking at a team of hundred. You, that's not something that like, no one's an expert and everything like that. You've got to bring the right folk into that. That's amazing. Fantastic. Um, uh, what was the thing I was just about to ask? Yeah. On, I, I sort of jumped back to the farm park there just because I was interested in that, uh, how many you're employing there. But on on the sort of side of country file, Adam, what do you think in general it does for farming? And farming's, <clears throat> farming, you could say, and I'm actually just about to ask you in a minute about COVID and what, how it's impacted you, your work on both sides, both farm, farm park and, and media, media industry. Um, Almost COVID, I don't want to say COVID's been good. That sounds like we're benefiting from something that's not nice, but it's seen prices rise, all that sort of thing. But what what do you think Countryfile itself does for farming? <clears throat> yeah, so I think it gives it exposure to a very wide audience. So they've done some um, viewer research and um, it's generally a slightly older demographic. So, you know, plus 55-ish, maybe more into the 60s. There is a large younger audience as well. Um, so there's a whole range of people. So people who live and work in, in the countryside, but also a largely urban demographic watch the programme because it brings the beautiful countryside into their living room on a Sunday night. It's become a sort of staple. You know, you watch um, Country File, then you watch the Antiques Roadshow, and then you watch a drama. And, um, and so for farming, it has made it... Uh, accessible to the masses. Um, the farming community sometimes complain that Countryfile isn't hard hitting enough, isn't technical enough. Um, <clears throat> but what they forget is it that it is touching lot of people that wouldn't other, otherwise have any idea what's going on in agriculture. And, and, and it isn't just about farming. It's about, you know, the whole rural domain and conservation and farming issues. And, you know, there's the, there's the investigates part of the program, which is quite hard hitting about, you know, rural issues. And, um, and so, yeah, and it, I think it does a very, very good job. And all of these things come hand in hand, just because we're not looking at someone combining wheat or lamina yow or whatever. If you're looking at rural affairs, 
we are in the rural industry, all of that impacts each other. And the more we can sort of showcase that as together, that, that's got that's got to be a win, um, I would say. And, and a bit of a, a, a deep, large uh, question for you, I guess. Where do you think farming is in general, just as UK farming? Do you think we're in a good place at the minute? I'm, I'm very excited about the future of agriculture. Um, I think it is a very rewarding career. Um, if you think about the agricultural food supply chain, I think it's something that our careers advisors um, forget about or maybe don't even know about um, because they're disconnected with the countryside and food production. And so, you know, if you took any student and asked them what they're interested in, you could put them into that agricultural food supply chain. So it might be, you know, shearing sheep, milking cows, driving tractors, managing a farm. It might be managing a rural estate. It might be agricultural banking, being an agricultural accountant. It could be nano engineering and marketing and food production. You know, there's a, there's a whole array of very rewarding um, career choices out there in agriculture. Um, we will always have the challenges of the exchange rate, the weather, animal and crop diseases, um, political change. You know, uh, 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 those those things are difficult for for agriculture. But we've you know become a very resilient industry that is quite quick to adapt and change and make the most of of the situation. I think going forward. Um, there are some initial challenges because the government is removing the base payment scheme, the farm support scheme, changing that over to environmental land management schemes um, that we will get paid for from public money for public goods, um, but they're not in place yet. So we're having support removed, but it, there's nothing to replace it with at the moment. Um, we're being told we need to reduce our carbon footprint, rightly so, um, but there's a whole plethora of ways of measuring that it's a bit of a sort of wild west out there how we get our heads around that um but i think there are some interesting opportunities so i think we can produce food really really well with precision farming and and technology and robots milking cows self-steering tractors drone operated machines you know robotics all is coming to the forefront we can look after the environment and be incentivized to do that we can potentially carb trade, carb, um, trade carbon and we can potentially then also look at biodiversity net gain. So where there's a building site or a HS2, um, we can provide the conservation areas to offset that. And so, you know, and then also there's diversification as well. So, so there's a huge array of, of opportunities out there. Yeah, absolutely. And just one thing, plugging my own stuff. Um, if you're interested in some of the stuff Adam's just mentioned, uh, back right at the start of the R2Cast, we had some, a vertical farming expert. Uh, I really want to get a, a person in the States who is uh, spearheading the, the movement of drone spraying. Um, there's a lot of fantastic uh, uh, precision agricultural techniques out there. Controlled traffic farming, real-time kinesis. There's so much interesting stuff there i'm a proper nerd for it all uh, and if you're interested in it um make sure to check back through of, of previous arc casts there adam was mentioning um a uh, carbon carbon trading uh, carbon credits might be what we're looking for and you said it's, it's tricky because we don't have a carbon calculator that we've decided is correct we've got so many and we don't really know exactly and yeah obviously we'll reduce carbon 
but at what cost do we reduce carbon while also increasing output? It's all quite confusing what sort of road we're going down with that. And the, the offsetting thing worries me slightly. Uh, offsetting makes sense, but I think if you just have, let's just say company X has this many emissions um, and they think, well, let's buy this woodland from someone else. You haven't changed anything. Your business itself is better, but is the world any better off? And it's, it's an interesting discussion. It, 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 there's much smarter people out there than me to talk about it. Um, but yeah, it's all, all really an interesting future and a bit of a sort of grey area regarding payments wise. But I still am with you. I'm confident for, for, for where farming's going. Um, a word we've only mentioned once throughout, and it's been quite nice to not hear this bloody word for, for the last half hour, is COVID. Now, um, what what do you think COVID's done for just basically everything you're involved in? So, so the work with with the TV, uh, there, Adam farming, uh, obviously tourism. We, we know the, the the impact there, but how how has that impacted you? Yeah, so um, incredibly difficult emotionally to start off with when we went, first went down into into lockdown in 2020. Um, I had to send all the staff home, and I didn't know whether I'd ever see them again as employees maybe you might have had to make them redundant uh, with the Cotswold Farm Park my business partner and I had, had invested heavily so um, we were very exposed financially and we were relying on that year to be our big return year and then Covid hit so I sent them home and I genuinely cried a lot um, yeah. because I thought actually we might lose our business and our business is a tenanted farm we don't own anything at all um, apart from the sheep and the cows and the tractors um, so I would, if, if the business had gone down, I'd have lost my entire life where I'd been living all my life and my home because my home is a rented house where I'm sitting, we, I rent this place. And so it's part of the farm. And so I'd have lost my home and my business and it, it was scary. But then came along a thing called furlough that I'd never heard of. I had to look it up. Um, 5% VAT, the Corona's biggest business interruption loan, all the things that the government put in place were a huge help. Television carried on, the BBC and Channel 5 and all those companies um, worked really hard to, to make sure we could keep working and doing it safely. So that was very good. Eventually, when we reopened the Cotswold Farm Park, um, the public came flooding back because we're outdoors, we're safe, we're, you know, we're all the things that the government were promoting. Um, in fact, Prince Charles came and visited the farm park um, a couple of weeks before we opened and he was getting right behind rural tourism and, and he, he came around and, and that was a huge boost for us and our staff. Um, and we changed the way we did things. So book online, cashless systems, and we then knew how many people were coming every day. Um, it was much easier to manage. So we changed a lot of our management systems. And with the commercial farming side of things, the sheep needed lambing, the crops needed planting, and but we just were really careful. So we were swabbing out vehicles, we were wearing gloves, we were hand sanitizing everything. Thankfully, none of our team got ill. Um, we did have a few of their relations that, that one of them did pass away. So that was tragic. Um, but um, it just changed the way we worked. And in agriculture, I was particularly worried um, about commodity prices and what would happen post-Brexit and whether the COVID factor has changed that. But now the price of lamb has been really strong the whole of 2021, as has beef and the grain prices are through the roof. And so, you know, commodity prices have been really strong. So 
as an individual, my lockdown was living on a on a beautiful farm. Um, but I was very, very scared for the, for the sake of our business. But now we're here still to tell the story and um, have done very well this summer. And, and we're in a very comfortable position um, to be able to cope with whatever's around the corner. Good. And, you know, commodity prices, for, for as long as I ever remember understanding prices in farming, I have never seen it like this, um, including inflation and stuff like that. It's just it's brilliant. And you strike me as quite a conscientious guy um, having that many people on the payroll. That, that decision must have been horrible. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. what that's like. It, yeah. it sort of really hit me... You know, I, I always was very aware of our social responsibility to all of those people that we were employing and the success of our business is, is their success because we want to, you know, some might say corporate, but we wanted to employ really good people and train and retain them and make them part of our community and part of our family, which is very much what we've done all, all of my life. And um, a lot of them are, you know, friends or close associates. And uh, yeah, no, it was absolutely horrible um really worrying um and you know and and very upsetting and and you know the people talk about the mental challenges they've had during the last 18 months and and i can completely get that um yeah. you know very very difficult and a lot of businesses haven't survived and um you know it, it it's been difficult for the you know the whole the whole particularly entertainment and um and tourism you know and, you know, you think about the theatres and the cinemas and those indoor um, places, you know, we were lucky we were outdoor so we could open sooner than others. No, I mean, I'm, I'm from an island in the west coast of Scotland called Arran. You may or may not have been. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it's, there's basically two main, well, three main industries. There's construction, agriculture, but mainly, and the biggest employer is tourism. And it, it ruined island for you know the time it was it was sad but let's let's try and jump on to a bit more of a, a more positive topic uh, there's two more things i want to cover just short things before uh, the illustrious two questions that most of my viewers will know it's not too it to uh, over owners don't worry um obviously what i sort of do is try and promote that journey from rural to kitchen farm to fork stable to table whatever you want to call it um you did something with uh, yourself and nigel did a farm kitchen um, could you tell us a bit about that and how, how that came about? Because I thought it was excellent. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, thank you. So um, so the BBC wanted to um, bring together the whole idea of food and farming. And so bring together a chef and a farmer. So I would do the growing and Nigel would do with the cooking. And we'd talk about the value of food, um, some of the complications and difficulties about growing things. Um, we tried growing some crops that we, we don't grow in the UK. So rice. And we tried growing Durham wheat for producing pasta and then pigs and poultry and all, and all the other things. And Nigel's a, a lovely, gentle person who's a brilliant chef and a wonderful communicator and very passionate about the value of food and bringing people together to talk about what's on their dinner plates and, you know, the Sunday roast and all those sorts of things. So it was a really enjoyable program to work alongside him. And um, it was very well received. Um, it's a shame we didn't do another one, um, but it's, um, it, it really struck a chord with me, um, the idea of trying to get across to the consumer. You know, that is the one thing we, we all have in common. We all have to consume. We all eat. Um, getting that messages, those messages across about 
you know, the amount of energy and effort that goes into producing some fantastic British produce and getting people to think really carefully about where their food comes from and understanding the values behind it. Um, and now I've been trying to push forward on that a lot. You know, I've written a children's book about, you know, it's a fun children's book, but it's about the reality of food and farming. And I've been talking to the educational minister about getting a GCSE in agriculture and land use so that people learn about where their food comes from as children. And then as adults, they can make informed choices about what they eat. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a great, I thoroughly enjoyed making the show. That your point about the GCSE in agriculture, I'm a lecturer in agriculture and you get a lot of students that come in, not from farming backgrounds that are like, man, I wish I had seen this, like just for a bit, just to see what, what a sheep does. You know, it's quite simply that that's, that's what you're doing at GCSE. You're not going into, you know, fancy stuff. You're just looking at what farming is, what it means, why we're doing it. I would back that to the moon and back. Like, I think that is excellent. I would love to see a GCSE or like what we've got up here, uh, National Fives and stuff like that in, in agriculture or, or land use, as you say, whatever the name decides to be. It'd be brilliant. Um, one, one other thing that uh, I, I commend you for, I commend all of, all of involved yourself and Kate with it, the two, Kate Humble, I, I remember doing this, was a lambing live. Um, now, I, I have done a lambing live that went out in total to about 16,000 folk uh, between three over the course of a week and um, with help with, the, uh, well, now ex-partner, but with some family and the girl that sort of helps from down the road and had some great fun. Folk got to see what farm, what was really happening right at the coal, at the coal fire um, and all times there was actually a lamb coming, which was always the worry that it wouldn't happen. Um, or maybe the worry was it went bad, but uh, you've done it in front of a lot more people. So how how did that feel? What was that dynamic of just being live in front of the world? Yeah. So, so for me, I've never really done live television before, so it's absolutely terrifying. Um, <laughs> Kate is a master at it and a very generous, lovely person and a brilliant presenter. So she really carried me and gave me lots of guidance and help and, and really took control of the situation often because we were, you'd block it out. So you, you'd go through a sort of set rehearsal. I'm going to be here, you're going to be here. We'd be linking to little video inserts. And, but often, as you know, with livestock, things change and a lamb would suddenly start being born in the corner of the shed and what they wanted to go was to the real action. And so quite often things were thrown out the window and Kate would just reorganize everything. And so I just was like a bit like a rabbit in the headlights my only um, forte was that I was a farmer and I knew I'd lamb sheep. And, and, and so I was comfortable in that environment. But live television is so scary, um, but brilliant to be able to get the, the subject out there. It was really well received. We did three lambing lives. Initially, the producers were quite worried about showing too much goo and gore and death. Okay. But Kate Humble and I were very keen that they should tell the real story of a sheep shed, of, of a lambing barn. And um, the viewer was interacting with us because it was live. People were sending in emails and wanting questions and all those sorts of things. And the producer suddenly realized actually the viewer wants to know everything. And then they started to zoom in on stuff that was happening. And we did talk about a lamb if it was still born. We talked about animals going for slaughter and all that kind of stuff. And um, and it became a you know biological, gynecological feast. And that's yeah. that <laughs> And it and it and that and that was great because it wasn't you know it wasn't just lamb skipping in the daffodils it was warts and all. 
<laughs> Gynecological feast, brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's great, and uh, there's a local farmer from where I'm from that, that did an open lamb and shed, and what that means, a hundred folk in the farm coming to watch this, and him being him, uh, and if he's listening, he knows I'm going to say this. He buggered off in the kitchen and left myself and a few other folk to be in the shed, and having that people in front of you is 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 daunting. So yeah, f- fair fair play to you for that. Um, so yeah, it, thank you very much for coming on, Adam. Uh, I've got a couple couple more questions uh, to ask you there, but that's been really get good to sort of get a breakdown uh, of of in some ways for a lot of people the face of farming. Uh, so that's been excellent. So thank you for that. Um, but the, the two things I ask everyone, I haven't forgotten to ask anyone yet, um, is one, where do you see yourself in five years? So what's the future for, for Adam Henson? And uh, two, if you'd any tips for, and I'm going to make this a bit larger than normal, people coming into farming, people coming into uh, sort of media in general, um, and people coming into presenting, what, what would they be? <clears throat> yeah, so where do I see myself in five years' time? Um still working on the farm um developing and building our tourist enterprise um we've developed the sort of staycation side of the business so for accommodation on the farm that's become a really important part of what we do so getting visitors to come and stay with us as well as visit so the farm park's a really important part of what we do looking to develop the farm i think we're going to turn towards more regenerative farming and um, we've got to start really thinking very carefully about our carbon footprint and that all slight perhaps be turning the clock back to more rotational type of farming systems and looking closely at the environment, which I'm into and I enjoy and I'm really fascinated by. So that that suits me well. And in the media world, um, hopefully I'll still be um, tickling along and, and working on shows like Country File. And I'd love to have my own um, countryside, you know, slot um, every week on a, on a board, you know, program that was um, renewable every year in some kind of format. So that'd be a great thing to be able to do. For the second question, you know, people coming into agriculture or the media or the world of presenting, I think it is about um, being true to yourself and playing to your strengths and and working out what you want from from life. You know, what is your what is your purpose? What is, what is your dream? What are your ethics um, in agriculture? It used to be uh, for the people who are less academic would be advised to get into farming i don't think that's necessarily the case now i think you've got to be business-minded you've got to be technological you've got to be hard-working of course and um but you know you you've got to be quite entrepreneurial as well and so i would say work hard at school get yourself off to agricultural college or university and try and get as much experience as you possibly can on farms practically if that's the the type of agriculture you want to get into and um the same in the media i think there's a whole plethora of platforms now for media and communication and you know congratulations to you for, for doing this podcast because I think the more we can tell the stories and, and and get people out there listening to us then then that's that's a really good thing for agriculture and land use so so you don't have to be a tv presenter you can be a journalist in many forms whether it's writing on the radio and podcasts you know influencing people in many forms and then with that can come you know, financial return. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's, I don't know, it, it, it's difficult, but I think be true to yourself and um, go for things you really believe in and you're really passionate in. Um, it's so important to to enjoy life and, and make the most of what you do. I can imagine that be true to yourself 
statement is very true in the media industry. And, and there's a lot of us want to be on the telly, you know, just because we want to be on the telly, but not actually having a passion for why you're on the telly. I can imagine is a desire that a lot of people have. Um, so that's a really good point. Yeah, and, and the way you said there that it was often less up less I can't even say academic, maybe I'm one of them, uh, less academic people that would be pushed into agriculture. It's it's a shame that, that was that was how it was. And it's you I like the fact you said go to agricultural college and university. That that's good. Um yeah, no, all good stuff. Uh I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to say, Adam. I think we've covered. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank yeah. you very much. You know, and if anybody has got any ideas, including yourself, you know, for ideas for for country file or other um, rural programs, then you know where where all ears. And um, good luck for yourself in the future. And uh, you know, thank you everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, onwards and upwards. And my one advice to everybody is take a little bit longer deciding what you buy when you go to get your uh, your food from the supermarkets or from the shops. And uh, if you can, try and support British. Absolutely excellent. And the next time you're in the supermarket aisles, be sure to source from the British Isles. Um, yeah, no, thank you. And this is going to be weird for you, Adam, because we're currently filming this in September. Uh, I'm going to say have a very Merry Christmas and a very good New Year. And uh, as I said at the start, thank you very much for the support over the last year. And we will see you for Series 2 in 2022. See you later on. Happy Christmas.